If you've got a Bible this morning, we are jumping back into the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 10, we started a series a while back, working our way systematically through the Gospel of Mark. We've had a few breaks in there, just finished a series on spiritual warfare and the armor of God, but we're jumping back into Mark chapter 10 where we left off in this series of messages entitled, Our Servant King, working our way through Mark's Gospel. So we'll pick up in Mark chapter 10 and read verses 17 to, or I'm sorry, verses 13 to 31 together. If you don't have a copy in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together this morning. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. Mark writes, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, saying, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for with all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is God's Word. You know, as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, one of the things when we left off, we had just passed through a section of Mark's Gospel in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus lays out his, his requirements for discipleship. He says, if anyone would come after me to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, he's got to side with me against himself. He's got to serve me instead of himself or herself. Right? And he's got to put his feet on the path of discipleship and order the everyday, ordinary realities of his life around the message and the mission and the mercy of Jesus. That's what discipleship is. Because discipleship, listen church, it doesn't take place, it's not a mystical experience. Discipleship does not take place in some kind of mystical way, but it takes place in the everyday realities and relationships of our lives. 
Which is why just before this, when Stanley preached for us at the end of my sabbatical this summer, before we went to the spiritual warfare series, Jesus talks to us about discipleship and marriage. What it looks like in the context of that relationship. Other places in the scripture speak to what it looks like in the context of parenting and how we instruct and raise and correct and discipline our children. How we order our, our family lives around the message and the mission of Jesus. All throughout the New Testament, when we read in Paul's epistles, we see things like this, like serve one another, love one another, encourage one another, correct one another, admonish one another, exhort one another, right? right? It, it, over and over again, we see the discipleship plays itself out in everyday realities and relationships that we engage in 24-7, 365, Okay, now, uh, so, so often we think that if I, if, and, and listen, I'm not diminishing the reading of the scriptures and prayer and solitude and fasting. All of those things have their place in forming the habits of our hearts. But listen, if those do not form the habits of our hearts that express themselves in the everyday realities and relationships of our lives, then we're not properly following Jesus, ordering our lives around his message and his mission. And one of the areas in which Jesus speaks of frequently with regards to discipleship is in the area of material wealth and possessions. One of those everyday realities that he presses on. In fact, if you read in Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, he says that if you look at the life and teachings of Jesus, nearly 15% of everything Jesus said when he taught had to do with getting, keeping, using, distributing, and approaching wealth. This means, with, listen, with Jesus as our pattern, that we ought to be talking about wealth and possessions every eight weeks. <laughs> right? out, of, out of 52 weeks in the year, right? We'd be hitting that every eight weeks. And that's hard for some of us because we're like, we don't like to talk about money because it makes us uncomfortable. But listen, I want you to know that if you hung around Jesus, he would make you uncomfortable. <laughs> right? Because there are things that he presses on in our lives. Right? That at times aren't palatable for us. There are times things that he presses on our lives that do bring conviction that make us uncomfortable. In fact, if you're new with us, you may think, man, I, I showed up this week and now they're talking about money. That's all that the church ever talks about is money. But let me just be clear. I, I would say that the church doesn't talk about money enough. And what I mean by that is not that the church doesn't ask for money enough. What I'm saying is we don't think about money and possessions enough to think thoroughly, biblically about them. Right, that's the issue for us today. So this morning as we look at this particular text and see what Jesus has to say about the deceptiveness of wealth and childlike dependence upon God, I hope that you will receive it as such that my aim is not, okay, it is not to say, hey, you should give the church more money so I can get a raise, okay? We're not that church, all right? My aim is also not to say, hey, listen, God wants you to be healthy and he wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to have a big bank account and big homes and cars. We're not that church either. Because in the Bible, wealth is neutral. Okay, It can either be used for great gospel initiatives and good or it can be used for all sorts of destructive evil, both publicly and personally in our lives. But wealth in and of itself is neutral. And yet Jesus has some pointed things to say about wealth in this particular text. So let's take a look at two of them. The first thing that Jesus tells us about wealth in this text 
as it relates to discipleship is this, is that wealth is incredibly deceptive. Wealth is deceptive. Listen, this story about this man who comes to Jesus, it appears in the three synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So in all three of those places, we find this story. And in each story, we get a fuller picture of who this man was. Here in Mark, we're told that he was a man with great wealth, great possessions. In Luke 18, we're told that he was also a ruler and a man of great wealth. So in that day, much like in our own, when someone has a great deal of affluence, they often have a great deal of influence. Okay, so you had great wealth, you had, your life was put together, and so you were given opportunities, and you were placed in positions of authority. Okay, and then in Matthew chapter 19, we're also told that he was a young man. Okay, so in in that day and time, this guy's probably in his early 20s. Got great wealth, has positions of authority, has influence in the community, social standing. This is who is approaching Jesus. And notice the way that he approaches him. We're told in the text in verse 17 that he runs to meet him, which very few people did, particularly those of societal standing in the ancient world. You didn't run under the hot Near Eastern sun if you were a person of great standing, of great stature in society. He kneels before him. So he runs up to him. He falls upon his knees as as, as a sense of, of communicating deference to Jesus. And then he asks him, this, or he exalts him with these honorific titles. He says, good teacher. Now in the ancient world, teacher was already a title of honor, and he adds the adjective on the front of it to say good teacher. And all of this has led to the suggestion by many commentators that what this man is doing on the basis of his wealth, on the basis of his influence, is he's coming to Jesus almost in utter deference to him, not to follow him, but to flatter him. To flatter him. There was no need to add good on the front of teacher. It was already a title of honor. And as he approaches Jesus, he asks this question. Listen to what he asked. What must I do to get what I'm missing? Eternal life. Life in the kingdom of God. Right? Wealth is incredibly deceptive because it leads us to believe That there is something that we are able to do to curry favor with God. Because that's how our human relationships work. Whenever we're people of standing, stature, and possessions, and wealth. What must I do, Jesus, to get eternal life? Listen, this is... so. It's interesting because in in this, this man's approach to Jesus, listen... He, he, it seems that he's, by all external appearances, he's a guy who's got it all together, doesn't he? Right? So he's got wealth, he's got standing, he's got stature in society. And then Jesus responds to him. How does he respond? He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, if you knew how close to the truth you actually were, and yet how far potentially your heart is from embracing that truth. And then he goes on to say, you, you know the commandments, Right? Don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. He goes through this, the second table of the law, as theologians have called it, the, the horizontal commandments, the relational commandments between man to man. And he says, Jesus, I have kept all those things from the time of my childhood. Right? So I've done all those things. I'm not defrauded anyone. 
I've not stolen anything. I'm not committed adultery. I haven't killed anybody. I mean, come on, Jesus. I've kept the law. And the text says that Jesus, he looked at him and he loved him. Because Jesus saw through all of his external compliance. He saw through all of the facade on the outside. And all the deceptiveness of wealth in the man's life. Listen, Jesus, I don't know if, uh, uh, let me see if I can illustrate to you this way. When, when I was a kid, I used to love to watch um, the DC comic Justice League cartoons every Saturday morning, right? And so I can remember waking up, pouring the bowl of Fruity Pebbles, sitting down on the living room floor with the TV tray, and clicking on some Justice League, okay? And so you watch Batman, and Superman, and Robin, and Aquaman, you got all these superheroes, you got Superman, right? I always thought the most interesting, though, was Wonder Woman. Because Wonder Woman was, you don't mess with Wonder Woman, okay? She's got the golden lasso, and she has an invisible jet, okay? So the invisible, I, always, I was always puzzled by the invisible jet, because it's like the enemies aren't going to see this woman seated in a position flying over them in order to come and thwart whatever devious plans they have, right? The jet's invisible, but she's not. Little interesting, okay? But listen, I remember watching the 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 DC the, the Justice League cartoons. But one of the coolest powers I always thought that these superheroes had was X-ray vision. Okay, so they could see through walls, they could see beyond doors, they could see the other side of what was really going on. And listen, I want you to know that in this text, Jesus, okay, the most mm, the, the, the the most powerful and most, most prestigious superhero of all right, is operating with the same kind of x-ray vision, except it not only allows him to see the devious plots behind the, the you know, Lex Luthor's dungeon or whatever, but it allows him to see directly into the human heart. Directly into the human heart. Jesus is able to perceive that despite his keeping of all the external commandments, that despite his position of status and stature, despite the wealth that he possessed, there was something in his heart that held first place that was not God. And whenever Jesus sees this, you know what he does? Out of love, he says it. He says it. See, we often think that for God to love us, that what, what God's love means is that He doesn't press us too much, He doesn't say things that are hard to hear, and He kind of gives us enough wiggle room to kind of just kind of wallow there and stay there. But in reality, the mercy, grace, and love of God in our lives means that when Jesus sees something, He says something. And He says it out of love. Listen, He doesn't say it out of, He doesn't loathe us. The text doesn't say that. It doesn't say he looked at him and loathed him, was disgusted by him. What does it say? He looked at him and loved him. And so he said the one thing that he knew would cut through all the external trappings of this man's life to get down to the core issue. And what does he say? You lack one thing. You've done all these things, but there's something else that holds first place in here. So go and sell everything. Give to the poor and come follow me. Come follow me. And what does the text say? The man went away, what? Rejoicing and clicking his heels, but he went away sad because he had great possessions. 
See, Jesus sees it, and he says it. And like a physician with a scalpel that wants to cut away the cancer, he's aiming to cut it out of this man's heart, and the man walks away discouraged and saddened. Because Jesus knows something that we don't, which is often assumed in the ancient world and even in ours, is that wealth is deceptive because, in, because when you have material wealth, you can assume at times that there's also a, attached to that spiritual health. Because oftentimes those two things are drawn together. In fact, that's one of the most deceptive things about material wealth. The assumption in the ancient world was that if you had material wealth, then it was also a sign of God's favor and blessing, and it was equated with spiritual health. And listen, that assumption is still operative today. And so if you were to see two individuals or two families walk into our church on Sunday morning, in fact, James will speak about this when he talks about partiality in the book of James in chapter 2, but if you saw two individuals or two families walk into our church and one was well put together and was prestigious and powerful and held positions of influence in our community and the other walked in looking like they'd just been on an all-night binge, okay, because they were dressed way down, they were scruffy, they, didn't, they weren't very well put together, you might assume that one man had great spiritual health and the other potentially was so far from God. And yet Jesus oftentimes will take that and turn it on its head and say it is the rich who are far and the poor who are near. Over and over again, we assume that those who are successful in business is powerful, upwardly mobile, influential, have material wealth and power, they're grounded spiritually. It can be so deceptive because it gives us a false assurance. A false assurance of God's favor in our lives. So Jesus teaches us, listen, wealth is incredibly deceptive. But not only is it deceptive, listen, church, it is also impotent. It is also impotent. You know, in our culture, material wealth equals power, but if you think about it, under the surface, material wealth is powerless to do anything about the things that matter most in life. You know that? And material wealth is no guarantee of rich, dynamic relationships with people. Material wealth is no guarantee that your son or daughter are going to grow up to have a, a rich God-honoring life and relationship with you. That material wealth is no guarantee. It does not provide the deep satisfaction, purpose, and meaning in life because we cannot buy, sell, or trade to get the things that matter most in life, which over and over again, Jesus says the thing that matters most in your life is a relationship with God and your relationship with others. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Vertical relationship, horizontal relationship. And listen, wealth cannot buy you either it is powerless to do so in verse 23 listen jesus speaks of this reality when he talks about how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of god he says you can't buy your way in lend your way in or impress your way in that those everything that wealth brings with it the the status that it affords is powerless to affect your salvation it's powerless to bring you into the kingdom of god in fact, he gives an illustration of that. He says it's, more, it's easier, right, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now listen, there's all kinds of speculation from the commentators about what that actually meant. 
right? They're like, well, Jesus couldn't have really been referring to a real needle that you sew with and a real camel, okay? So they're like, well, maybe he's talking about a rope, right? You can peel back the layers of a rope to get one little thread that can go through the eye of the needle. Or maybe he's talking about some gate in Jerusalem, Right? That the only way a camel could get through is to have bent down and you had to humble yourself to come in. You had to pull back layers of your life to thread it through. Right? That's not what he's talking about. There's no evidence of that gate until the ninth century. Long after Jesus spoke these words, he's talking about the largest animal. There were no blue wells, okay? In the ancient Near East, just hanging out there in the desert. Okay? There's no elephants in the He's talking about the largest mammal in his day and the smallest conceivable passage and so he's saying it's easier for that camel to get through the eye of the needle for than for a person whose life is full of material possessions and wealth to enter into the kingdom of god that's not me okay that's jesus saying that that it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for the camel to get through the eye of the needle and that's why listen the disciples it says in the text the way they respond to that statement is they're exceedingly astonished like they are blown away by what jesus just said and they say if that's the case jesus then who's getting in right because they're supposed to be the people who have everything put together they're people who are doing everything right they're the people who, uh, who have your fa- God's favor and blessing. If that's the case and they can't get in, it's hard for them to get in, then how can anybody get in? And what does Jesus say? With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, there is nothing that you and I can do to pile up our merits to effect salvation. There's nothing that we can do. But God is able to save to the uttermost because nothing is impossible with Him. In fact, you might say it this way, that what Jesus says is that what man cannot do by his own merit, God is able to do by His abundant mercy. Only God can save. Only God can give standing with Himself before Him. And in fact, I find it interesting that the way that God has chosen to do this, to show that nothing is impossible, is listen, He's done the very thing that this man was unwilling to do. The very thing this man was unwilling to do. So when Jesus says to the man, listen, you lack one thing. Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. Jesus is not just laying out some arbitrary boundary for this guy. He sees into his heart. He knows what has first place, which he sees into each of our hearts this morning to know what has first place in our own lives. But he sees into his heart, knows what has first place, and he says, leave that. Put that aside. Make me your priority. Make me the center of your life. Make me the treasure that you would give up everything else to acquire. But Jesus would do the same thing himself. Because I love the way Paul talks about the gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul's writing the church at Corinth, trying to encourage them right, to leverage their financial capital to assist the church in Jerusalem okay, in a difficult time, what he says to the church at Corinth is this. 
Listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He writes these words, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Now, Paul's not saying that Jesus died so that you could have a bigger house, a nicer car, and a padded bank account, and a vacation home in the Caymans. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, is that Jesus, who possessed all the riches of heaven, owned the cattle on a thousand hills, the one, the one who, who all the oil reservoirs of the Middle East are His. Everything in this created order and in the heavenly realm belong to Him. And what He does is He bankrupts Himself by coming and being clothed in flesh, wandering with no place to lay His head. Even foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no home in which to lay His head. Lived life as a wandering teacher and nomad to fulfill God's law, to bring God's people to Himself, and that ultimately He would live a perfect and sinless life, die a sinner's death, be raised from the grave. So He empties Himself, impoverishes Himself, so that people like me, can know the richness of knowing God. And people like you can know the richness of knowing God. See, what Jesus calls this man to do, he would do himself. He would sell everything that he had to give it to the poor, me and you, in obedience to his Father's will. That is something wealth can never give you will never give you a rich relationship with God. It will never give you a rich relationship with others. It's impotent to do those things. Powerless. So what do we do about this? If wealth is deceptive and it's impotent, how do we cut through its deceptiveness and find real power in discipleship? Let me give you two things this morning. How do we respond? First of all, we have to come to Jesus with a childlike dependence. Listen, there could not have been any starker of a contrast, could there? Between the rich man in verses 17 to 22 and the children in verses 13 to 16. In verse 14, Jesus says about the children, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Here you've got all these people bringing their children to Jesus, asking Jesus to touch them, to bless them. And the disciples are like, no, 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 Jesus can't be bothered with them. And Jesus rebukes his disciples and says, no, bring them to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He says, in fact, if you're unwilling to embrace me with a childlikeness, then you'll never enter into the kingdom of God. He says, it, that's, it's impossible without a childlike dependence to enter into the kingdom of God. So what does Jesus mean by this? Listen, there's a difference, church, between childishness and childlikeness. Okay? Some of us are still trying to figure that out, right? <laughs> Childishness and childlikeness. Listen, childish behavior is not something we would want to encourage. Like a refusal to listen and learn. Okay? I, if, I could, if, I, if I had a dime for every conversation 
right, in my household about learning from things that we did in the past and not repeating them in the present or the future, right? Refusing to listen and to learn. Or, you know, if you think about the childishness of failing to plan and prepare or the childishness of resistance to cultivating our gifts or neglecting the service of others and only wanting for ourselves what we want in that moment. Listen, your children don't have to be taught to be childish. They're born that way. Okay? Listen, whenever your infant is laying in the bassinet next to your bed, for those of you who are young parents or about to be young parents, or young parents two or three times over, right? If that's you, listen, your child who's laying in that bassinet doesn't wake up at 2 a.m. and look over and go, man, that young couple there, they look so peaceful right now. So filled with rest. I will wait until they arise. Until they awaken and wipe the sleep from their eyes and have their morning cup of coffee before I demand to be fed and changed. So I will just go back to sleep until they awake and come to me. If you had a child like that, like that is, that is like uh, Barnum and Bailey type stuff. You know what I'm saying? Put that kid in the circus. Okay? But listen. That's not how it works, is it? So they wake up at 2 a.m. and what do they do? They scream at the top of their lungs until somebody wipes them, changes them, and feeds them and fills their belly until they're rocked and they're put back in that bassinet or in that cradle and they go back to sleep, right? Because children, infants in particular, they are unable, right, to defer to the interest of anybody else but themselves. So we don't encourage childish behavior. We want to mature them out of it. But Jesus says there is a childlikeness that must be present in the life of anyone who would enter the kingdom of God. Because childlikeness, listen church, while children are not absolutely innocent because they're not, <laughs> they are not, but they are utterly dependent. Utterly dependent. That's why they wake up and cry at 2 a.m. because they can't feed themselves and they can't change themselves. I was talking with somebody earlier this week about their child who's now emerging into the potty training years. And they were like, we just can't break him of it. I was like, well, just tell him he's got to change himself and wipe himself, you know. Right? Figure it out pretty quick. Right? But listen, they, they are unable to do anything for themselves. You don't tell your three-year-old, hey, go turn on the gas stove and make yourself a grilled cheese. Right? They need you to feed them. There's an absolute dependence that they have upon their parents. And so when Jesus is speaking of a childlikeness that should characterize our lives, he's talking about there being an utter dependence, not upon yourself, not upon your standing, not upon your possessions, not upon your wealth, but an utter dependence upon God and God alone. That he would have primacy and first place and priority in our lives and we would depend upon nothing else. And that's a problem for us. Because rather than being childlike, listen, I don't know if anybody else has coined this term. I'll give it to you this morning. Rather than having a childlike dependency, many of us in our culture, we want to come to Jesus with our middle-aged merits. Right? Because by middle age, you're like, man, I've done some stuff. I've been some places. I've saved some. Bought some. I've had some relationships. I've made some investments. Right? I've done all these things. So you're beginning to accumulate 
like standing and stature and seen as a person of maybe wisdom or influence. Like we want to come to Jesus with our middle-aged merits. And those who live according to their middle-aged merits, listen, are people who are self-reliant, they're self-confident, and they are, they, they are taught and teach others that they can do anything they put their minds to. Right? We're taught to believe in ourselves, realize the innate powers that work within us, and realize our full potential and show the world just how special we are or can be. Right? That, that's a middle-aged merit mentality. Right? And, and, and you've heard me quote this song before, but it's, it's like the, the, song from the theme song from the movie Shrek. Right? When, when they, whenever they sing, hey, now you're an all-star. Get your game on. Go play. Hey, now you're a rock star. Get your show on. Get paid. All that glitters is gold. Only shooting stars break the mold. Right? That's the mantra of a middle-aged merit mentality. Right? That everyone who works hard is an all-star, rock star, shooting star, can do anything. They've got all this that they can bring and pile up at Jesus' feet and say, Jesus, look! Look at what I've done. And Jesus says, no. No, that those who enter into my kingdom, they know they're not all-stars, rock stars, or shooting stars. They know they're actually just fallen stars who have no merits that can pile up but are utterly dependent upon my mercy. Because what your merits can't get you, God's mercy is able to do. He's able to make you right with Himself. What nothing, it's, with man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. All things are possible. So come to Jesus with this childlike dependence. Listen, if you're here this morning or you're listening online with us, and you all your life you have thought that in order to curry God's favor, in order to have acceptance with God, that you must somehow build a spiritual resume that would impress Him to make you hireable in His sight. I want you to know that you can shred that thing today. You can shred it. Right? Because there's nothing that you can do to impress God. Listen, God is the worst talent scout in all of history. He is. Because it didn't take those who have impressive accomplishments on their resume and say, listen, you're the kind of people that I can build my kingdom on. No. That's why Paul would say, even in his letters, he says, listen, church, not many of you, right, were rich. Not many of you had stature. Not many of you were influential. But God chose the despised things of the world, the foolish things of the world, to break to shame those who are wise. Over and over and over again, you see that pattern in the Scriptures. So if you've thought, I've got to build a spiritual resume to get God to love me, to get God to accept me, I want you to know you can shut it this morning and come to Jesus saying, Jesus, I have nothing to offer to you. You have everything to offer to me. I am utterly dependent upon you in faith. Would you forgive me for trying to build myself up in your eyes? And would you shower me with your mercy and utterly save? Come to Jesus with a childlike dependence. And then finally, finally, I want you to know for all that we talk about with regards to what you lay down whenever you come into God's kingdom, I want you to know that you should expect a return on your investment. Because Jesus says so himself. Listen, as we consider the cost of following Jesus, not only about what we give up, but also what's given to us, nothing compares to the returns that we receive, both in this life and in the life to come, in eternal life. In, in, in the latter part of the text, in verses 28 to 31, Peter says to him, listen, Jesus, we've given up a lot 
So Peter says, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who's left house or mother or brothers or sisters or husbands or fathers or anything for my sake. Children or lands, my sake are the gospels who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, mothers, sisters, children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus says, whatever you have laid down, whatever you have given up will be returned to you a hundredfold. Now listen, if I came out this morning with a copy of the Wall Street Journal and gave you a stock tip, okay, that said, listen, tomorrow when the bell rings, if you will invest in this particular portfolio, it's going to show you a hundredfold return over the next ten years. What would you be doing? You'd be liquidating assets and you'd be waiting for the bell to ring tomorrow morning to buy, buy, buy all you could so that you'd receive a hundred, a hundredfold. Every dollar you invested would be $100 coming back to you. Every $100 you invested would be what? 100000 No? 10000 Something like that. I don't know. I'm terrible at math. That's why I'm not a teacher, okay? But it would be a massive return. And you'd be delighted. But listen, Jesus says, there's something better than the stock market. And in this age, he says, it's the life and the lives of others and such that it knits you together into this fabric of And he says, if you lost... If you gave up more than your family, you hated your mother and father and your brothers and sisters, as he says elsewhere, over the disagreements that you have with your family, if you gave up family in order to enter the kingdom of God, if you let go of that, he says, I want you to know that you're going to... It says, for every brother you gave up, you find a hundred of them in the church. A hundred brothers in the kingdom. There have been men in my life who have blessed me beyond measure with their friendship, with their prayer, with their of need. If you gave up a sister, I want you to know, Jesus says, you'll receive a hundred sisters in the church, in God's kingdom. If you, if you, <laughs> Jesus says, I want to invest in, mentor, raise up, pray for, encourage, disciple. Jesus says, whatever you have laid down, will be returned to you a hundredfold. In this life, in the midst of the church, as God's kingdom rules and reigns, in the richness of these relationships, but he says also in the age to come, in eternal life. He says everything that you have laid down here will be made up here and there. He says if you gave up an inheritance, if you, if you let go of first place, 
and leverage that for the sake of the gospel and for the advancement of God's kingdom. He says, I want you to know that what you laid aside here in your wealth and possessions will be returned to you there. Inheritance that is undefiled in heaven by God for you, awaiting your full and everlasting enjoyment of it. Hundredfold, both now and forever. So I want to be clear when we talk about discipleship, it is ordering your everyday, ordinary life around the message in relationships, and it does require sacrifice, but there is a great return on that investment. Us this morning who are lonely. That's good news for some of us this morning who are struggling. Following God's, God's, God's. God's leadership in our lives, His guidance in our lives that we've left behind so much in order to put our feet on the path of discipleship and not say no to God, to side with Him against ourselves and serve Him instead of ourselves, and we find ourselves in a position where we're struggling and lonely, I want you to know, listen, it, God promises a return. But listen, I want you to know that also lays a great opportunity As we find people like that coming through our doors, that we're able to be the brothers and the sisters. In other words, there's always and to be folded into this family, to be loved and cared for and served. No matter how much wealth they might possess. No matter how much No matter how much they've been able to move or shake in the community. So expect a return on that investment. That might mean for some of us stepping outside of some of the existing bubbles that we're in in order to help start new places for new people to connect in the midst of our congregation. You feel like I'm leaving something behind, but listen, there will be a return, church, on the investment. I could go a thousand other places with this this morning, but I'm already over time. Listen, wealth is incredibly deceptive, Jesus says. Do not equate material wealth to spiritual health. Because not only will that be destructive for you here in this life, but it will be destructive for you forever if you believe that those two things are equal with each other. Know that it's powerless to save, powerless to give you. So come to Jesus with your hands empty, not with them full. He is willing, ready, and able to return it in the richness of blessings that you cannot even fathom thank you for being so pointed with us
with regards to what is perhaps one of the most pervasive idolatries in our day and time. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has approached You all their lives trying to pad their spiritual resume with their middle-class merits and their middle-aged merits, Father, I pray that this morning you would show them that there is nothing they can bring before you that would make them acceptable to you. But all they can do is approach you with their hands empty and say, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Much in the same way that the tax collector beat his breast and bowed his head. Because they cannot come into the kingdom with their head held high and their hands full, only with their head bowed low and their hands empty. So Father, if that describes anyone on the sound of my voice this morning, God, may they come to you and your son who bankrupted himself, who gave everything away for the sake of we who are impoverished so that we might know the riches of a relationship with you, and they would lay themselves at at your feet. They would repent of their own self-righteous and self-confident attempts to be the kind of person that you would accept. And they would know your favor and mercy in Christ. That your Holy Spirit would cause them to be born again. And their heart would leap for joy. And Father, I pray that for those of us who have come to You with childlike dependence and at times have struggled to put our feet on the path of continued discipleship because of its costliness in our lives, may we recognize that whatever we lay aside, God, You, Your Son has promised He would return. With the richness of the things that matter most, of being welcomed in hospitality, even if we were rejected by our families. Of having brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in this church, even if we've left those behind hundreds of miles away in order to pursue your call in our lives. And Father, may we as a church embrace the opportunity and responsibility we have to be that for each other and for those that you're bringing into our midst. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.